Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Daniel Powell, at Spark Biomedical, discuss the most investable skill set an entrepreneur can have, his background in the medical device space, what they are working on at Spark Biomedical, where they currently are and where they are going, not being selfish on the terms for an investor, why he gave voting rights to his early investors, the ups and downs of his first round, where he raised money from, the different groups he raised from, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Daniel Powell. Daniel, thank you very much for being with us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here is I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as investors from around the world. And I've discovered that there simply isn't a silver bullet or even a specific formula or magic about how to raise or invest capital in med tech, especially after all the stories that we've had on this series. So my goal here is to extract insights so that we can demystify this process and help innovators from the medical device industry and the med tech industry overall benefit from this information. And the audience that listens into this thus far proven to be med tech entrepreneurs and investors from around the world. And I'd like to share your stories and advice with what I imagine this listener to be as this first time founder or CEO who has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself, who certainly I've met before you even became a CEO. And now you've successfully raised money, which we'll get into that story, and you're currently raising money. So we're going to demystify and bust open all that story of which you can share with us. But before we do that, and especially getting into your background and also the company that you are ultimately raising money and have raised money for, I have a few open-ended questions for you. The first one being, do you believe that people and money and or money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup, why or why not? And am I missing anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, and thank you so much for having me on your, your show. I really appreciate it. And I, I'm honored uh, to share my crazy journey <laughs> with those who would be interested. Um, you know, that's a fascinating question. You sent it to me ahead of time and I, I, I thought on it and I, I think I've taken both sides of the argument, but clearly people is, is yes, the lifeblood. Um, and good people uh, that are marching in the same direction, that have the same values and belief, uh, you just can't do it alone. I tried being an entrepreneur earlier in my life. I opened a game store for internet gamers, uh, totally different from this. I was by myself, 
struggling to make it work. And it just, it was a horrible experience. Um, having a team, um, having co-founders and not being the only one left worrying every night on how's this thing going to make it has made all the difference in motivation. And then clearly we need money to power it. And in the early days, we thought we'll just trade, you know, before we raise money, we'll trade stock for work. And it was the worst decision. Nobody gets up hungry to work for stock in the morning. You got to pay them for their time. And money solves a lot of problems. When something's not working, you can throw money at it and fix a lot of stuff. And I had to come to that conclusion uh, through trial and error where I'm waiting on an outsourced engineer guy that is working in his off hours to deliver a circuit board and we're four, five, six months past due and you can't motivate them. Uh, we raised money. We hired a different firm, threw money at it and the problem solved in 60 days. So I, I will I will say at the end of the day, yes, it's both. Yeah, that, that vision and the equity component certainly can be a motivator, especially wherever you fall on the org chart. Um, earlier so, especially being a founder, but as you go down the org chart or expand on that team, it may prove less and less, but to your point, money does the talking. And, and so keeping that venture capital or that influx of capital on the early stage, mid, late stage, to be able to keep your people alive and well and be able to produce, I fully agree, which is why I asked the question, is it people or is it money or is it both? So thank you for validating that. The, the next question I wanted to ask you, you mentioned starting your own company before and the challenges that came with that. You now, having been in the med tech industry for a while in various capacities, now leading an organization, having raised money, being the leader that you are, being the operator that you are in this regulated environment that we all play in, do you believe in luck and how much does luck play into the success of medtech? Yeah, that's uh, your, your questions are, are, are just certainly not easy uh, binary. Um, certainly things can go your way, right? There's, it's luck I even had this idea. So yeah, maybe. Um, uh, the whole reason we Spark exists is, um, well, luck comes to those who are prepared to be lucky also, I would say. You have to be ready to jump on an opportunity and move on it with purpose. Um, and at the same time, luck will go against you and you have to persevere through it. We have had everything go wrong that could go wrong, especially in the addiction field when you're trying to take people through rehab in one of the toughest parts of their life. And we'd have someone enter the clinical trial, be one hour in and their girlfriend call and they punch out and leave. And you're, that's bad luck. That's, but that's also nature of the the, uh, the the industry we're and the disease state we're trying to address. Um, yeah, yeah. And my wife often said the universe is conspiring to make us uh, successful because it needs us. So I don't know if that's luck or divine uh, intervention, but I, I do feel at times the doors have opened because we're doing the right thing. So be prepared. In other words, other times it's timing in general that things are out of your control. And it's okay to once in a while believe in some mysticness that luck just swings by once in a while or in a bad way too. You will get the bad kind first. <laughs> I guarantee it. <laughs> That's just the nature of startups. 
You told me before that you have raised capital, and this is on a previous call for all those listening, so I'm not crazy. I, I didn't just jump into it or skip a beat. Um, Daniel was telling me earlier that he, he has actually raised money before. And so I wanted to just ask this question to pick your brain from an entrepreneur's perspective. Having raised capital from investors, what do you think is the most investable skill set or characteristic of a medtech entrepreneur? And in other words, the, the one thing that you possibly could attribute or believe that the investors who invested in you or your company found the reason to invest in you? Like, what do you think they look for? Is it one investable skill set? Is it a multitude of characteristics? What do you think? So it's probably several. First, uh, well, you know, in my case, I think, I think my, uh, my sincerity and openness has been key for success. People, I recognize people, they simultaneously are investing in Spark, but they're investing in Daniel Powell. And that weighs heavy on me. I mean, that that's meaningful to me. I take it very personally and I take it as um, I'm a steward of that investment. I think that comes across and is very helpful because they know um, that I'm passionate and believe what I'm doing. Simultaneously, you have to be able to tell a story. You have to walk through the problem, the solution, the mission, and and really be able to communicate that. There's plenty of people who have brilliant solutions and they can't really communicate it. Um, The third thing is you have to check the boxes. And I have tried to do this uh, and failed miserably. There are key things that if you don't have in the deck, in the pitch, they say no. Um, do you have a patent? You, you better have a patent plan. What's your reimbursement strategy? I did the, the MedTech Innovator competition. I was winning every pitch competition. I was doing great. And I tried a new talking point. Um, they, I went to the competition and I said, you know, uh, we, you know, the reason hearing aids aren't reimbursed is because they make too much money off cash pay and they don't want the price to come in. And we see this like that. We, you know, we don't want CMS involved. Uh, there's plenty of money in cash pay space. I, I was washed out the very first round. Everybody was like, nope, that is not the answer we want to hear. And it was <laughs> ill between my legs. I was like, well, that's not the talking point. Um, we have a robust reimbursement strategy now uh, <laughs> that's in place. So that's the other thing, uh, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? It's you need to know what the game you're playing is. And I don't mean it flippantly. It's, you know, are you going to have governance over your board? Are you going to have, you know, your milestones? Do you have the strategy right? Um, do you have, you know, is your commercial strategy viable? All those things, you're going to need to check all those boxes to be successful. So I thank you for that. I, I usually ask and I'm going to spoil something real quick when I ask who you are, which I will do shortly. Um, but for my next question, I'm looking at, and spoil alert, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and I see St. Jude Medical, Levanova, getting a Nexian Med Systems, and then that led you to now being CEO of Spark Biomedical. And I don't want that to detract from when I ask you who you are, which I will do in a couple minutes. Um, but you did mention that you've been this entrepreneur who opened up a, a shop, a store for gamers that you just mentioned. So you have been seen and feeling that entrepreneurial spirit before. 
If you knew what you know now about being a quote unquote med tech entrepreneur, leading a med tech organization, not coming from semi either big or semi big boxes like St. Jude and Levanova and getting a Nexion, which I knew was an entrepreneurial company as well. Um, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech leader, a med tech entrepreneur, spearheading a company, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or would you do something differently? I definitely do it again. I, I love what I'm doing right now. And it's hard. It's the hardest work of my life, but I love it. Um, and, and, you know, you missed, you, you started mid, you started my mid career resume there uh, on LinkedIn because I started off, I was a business major. I guess I'm getting, I'm jumping ahead of who I am, but um, I was in search of who what I want to do with my life. And I, I worked at EDS, Electronic Data Systems, and then KPMG. And I was searching for um, something that I could just really believe in and say is my career. Um, started the game stores and uh, St. Jude Medical's Director of Engineering for Neuromodulation used to come in and play World of Warcraft during lunch. That's how I got into med tech. <laughs> That's my, like, how did this happen? And I was one week at, it was uh, ANS at the time. Uh, and I was one weekend and I was in training watching the neuroanatomy and learning about electricity. I have a business degree. What do I know about, you know, Ohm's law and everything. And I fell in love with it. And I, I just, it's been the last 20 years. I'm just motivated all the time to work in this space, especially neurostimulation. Just love it. So leading into my next question, Short and sweet. I'm not going to lead you on this one anymore. Is it glamorous being a med tech CEO? I mean, yes and no. It's cool. It's I, I'm in a club. I've never, you know, when I was a product manager at St. Jude, I didn't get to go to the neurotech reports with Jim Cavuto and crew and see what's going on. I didn't get to go to Nance in a way that was where I got to be behind the scenes or meeting with other CEOs or seeing innovation. So. I mean, I feel lucky. I love doing it. So in that way, it's glamorous. And then at home every day where you're just pulling your hair out and you're just trying to make sure the company survives, that part's not, you know, you're, you're, you're a bathroom cleaner and CEO, you know, you're the janitor, you're the everything you need. I, I used to manage our QMS, you know, I was on Greenlight Guru and I was like routing documents because that, that's what I needed to do for the success of the business. But I love being in this club. It's it's a it's a new group. I, and if I was just a product manager at St. Jude, I wouldn't be on your podcast. <laughs> Actually, quite true. Quite true. <laughs> Thank you for being on my podcast. Sorry to all the product managers at. <laughs> um, next question, final question before we get into you. You are the CEO of Spark Biomedical. What does the name of your company mean? Is there a story behind it? What does Spark Biomedical mean? Yeah, um, on my 40th birthday, I'm a big scotch connoisseur. And on my 40th birthday, me and my wife went to Scotland. All I wanted to do is sit at a bar and have a Scottish uh, bartender teach me about scotch and tell me dirty jokes, which check that box off the bucket list. We, <laughs> um, but we were on uh, Lake Inverness or Loch Inverness, uh, right after I just bought my nicest bottle of scotch I've ever bought in my life. And there was this old boat moored to the lock and it was called Vital Spark. And, uh, and like, I'm looking over my monitors, there's a 
a blown up picture of it on my wall was a piece of wall art. And I said, someday I'm going to name a company after that. It just, it, and it's the vital spark. It's the thing that motivates you. It's the fire within. It's the vital spark that makes something living. So when we formed this company, I went to my partner, to Alejandro and David, who are my founding partners. And I was like, I got the name of the company, Vital Spark. And they said, no, that is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, we like the spark part and, and we compromised in Spark Biomedical. But our podcast is now called Vital Spark. So I was able to salvage it through the whole thing. But that's that's where it came from. I like that spark of ingenuity and spark of life. Uh, the name has legs for days when you use it. I do love the double entendre that, you know, we're shocking people, you know, we're using electricity. So people are like, hey, did you know someone might misinterpret this as being shot? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we thought of that. <laughs> we didn't get three years in and miss the fact that there's sort of a, you know, poke your eye and, and, the, and the same reason the colors are orange. I, I, it doesn't have the word neuro in it, like every other startup, and I apologize, but it's just old, and it isn't the color dark blue, you know, Medtronic, Abbott, all these guys, just everybody's dark blue, neuro pace, neuro vector, new vector, new, I mean, it's just, we want to be different, and that's why one of our, you know, we're not, we're not your daddy's neuromodulation company, yeah, we're, we're something. We're not your neuro, your daddy's neuromodulation company. So this is why I asked that question. I mean, that's a freaking cool story, by the way. I mean, th once again, I just to kind of give context, and I, I typically do give context when I ask that question. I've had times where I ask the question, and it's like a one sentence, or it is what it is. And that, <laughs> you won't get any one sentence answers from me. <laughs> and that's the way I am too. So that's why we're going to get super along on this podcast. We're going to have a good conversation. But it, there's other times where you ask a question about a story, and it's like wow, names have meaning and it's very cool and I love it. So anyway, thank you for sharing that. The man behind the voice, lo and behold, Daniel Powell, we've chipped away at it thus far, but I really want the succinct story at this point. We know that you've been in video games and we've been in big boxes and entrepreneurship and Medtron or in, in med tech, but who are you? Where, where are you from? How have you built your life, your academic career, your professional life up until being the CEO of Spark Biomedical. And when you get there, then we'll rip open and tell the world what you're actually doing with Spark Biomedical. But who are you first? Yeah, so Daniel Powell, um, I was born and uh, raised in Dallas, Texas. And so always, uh, you know, I travel overseas when I was doing deep brain stimulation and introduced myself to the Germans as American by birth and Texan by the grace of God. And just, you know, just, just <laughs> and then listen to the, the, the muted laughs in the audience as Germans aren't known for their laughter. Um, um, went to Texas A&M. So that was just my, my, I have a older brother who's about six, six foot four, I'm five foot 10. So he's always been my big brother and a cowboy. He went to A&M. So, you know, I was just wired for that my whole life. I was in the core at A&M. Uh, almost went into the army. And then um, I was like about 30 minutes from signing my contract papers. And my brain was like, you're going to die there. <laughs> you, you are not wired for the military. So uh, I went the business route, got an accounting degree, thought I wanted to be a, uh, at the time, big six, now whatever it is, big five accounting auditor. See, you know, everybody told me, you know, you got to go become a CPA. Uh, and that's your career path. And I I got there and it, it just wasn't for me at all. Like I said, I spent several years kind of 
trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, saw the internet gaming cafe thing, somehow talked my wife into this to allow me to do this crazy adventure. Ran that for like five years and it was an amazing way to lose money. Let me tell you, it was, it was really efficient at losing money. Um, and then I get this break where I fall in and I get a software analyst position at St. Jude Medical or ANS. Um, and really going back to my roots when I was at KPMG and all, which is go out, discover unmet needs, just the basics, discover unmet needs, figure out the, what they're not saying, what the customer's not saying. And um, just had a great career there. It was spent about eight years, rose through the ranks, ended up uh, a director over um, all of upstream marketing for the electronics of so DBS, SCS. Um, and, and just I just absorbed everything. I could, you know, I learned everything about the electronics and the, the clinical applications. I was trying to do, I just had this vision that we could do this thing called um, local field potential and sensing, and which is now everybody's like, oh, bring computer interface. Like I was like, we were, I remember just thinking this thing is like, there's got to be something here and, and trying to figure out how we could get that into the product. And so then I uh, got recruited to Cyberonics, which is now Nova, which was vagus nerve stem for epilepsy and depression. So got exposed to a whole different side of stimulation, which is funny because ANS and, and Cyberonics had this ancient uh, bitter warfare between the old CEOs that were no longer there, like they hated each other. So it was kind of funny to hear the stories on the other side uh, of the house. And um, it's funny because we had an, uh, an investment in an auricular neuro wearable neurostimulation company in Germany called Servomed. And I remember seeing that and I said, that is horse crap and will never work. And so, the, you know, karma is I get to be CEO of something I called horse crap eight years ago. Uh, but that, that's a real good example of the implantable companies where like that, that wearable stuff will never work. Uh, so fast forward. Uh, I, I bounced around a little bit, ended up at a, a startup called Nexion for about nine months uh, before it went bankrupt and went under. Uh, and after my game stores, I swore I'd never be an entrepreneur again. I was like, I'm just going to take my paycheck and stability. And But then after being back in a startup, even one that failed spectacularly, um, I had the bug and I went to apply for a product manager position at Boston. And I just was like, oh, <laughs> please, this, I can't, I can't go back. Um, so I'd met my partners, Alejandro Kovalin and uh, Naveed Kadaparist, two of the greatest guys I've ever worked with in my career. And we got on the phone one day and we're like, hey, you want to start a company together? And we'd seen this application and we knew there was a withdrawal market and and Alejandro had invented an auricular neurostimulation device in his garage that he wanted to go after. So we, we you know, we knew a bit about it. And uh, we just sort of on the phone there said, hey, why don't we start a company? We agreed. Said, well, you want to split it three ways? Sure. You know, it's just, and uh, they've been the best partners for the last three and a half years. Uh, you know, we just like the perfect balance of science, engineering and business and respect for each other's role and uh, a, a team that you could lean on. So it's been the last three and a half years, it's just been, it's been tough. We've lost a lot of sleep, but it's been a great journey uh, to get here. That's awesome. That's yep. an awesome story. So lo and behold, now you've founded, and by the way, if I can retract everything I've said on, in terms of 
your title thus far, it's co-founder and CEO of Spark Biomedical. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> now that we're here, tell the world what Spark Biomedical is and does. What are you going after? What does your device look and feel like? Is it software only? Is it hardware and software? Is it hardware only? If you could just get on a loudspeaker and just pitch to the world and imagine everyone in the world is listening to this podcast, which I imagine that's the case. Uh, <laughs> of course. Of course. And um, <laughs> let, let the world know who Spark Biomedical is. Yeah, I'll, I'll lay the foundation. So, you know, vagus nerve stem and using the vagal network has been on the rise for the last decade. Sure, Cyberonics has been doing it for epilepsy for 30 years. But just the pure amount of opportunities to regulate the heart, the spleen, the lungs, the gut, the brain through the vagus nerve system is means that there is a lot of options. We went and developed a wearable device that stimulates the vagal nerve system and the trigeminal nerve system through the ear. We call it transcranial auricular neurostimulation because we're really hitting multiple nerve points at the ear. And it's really amazing. So, you know, a lot of basic science has been done over the last 10 years to really map how you're accessing from the ear, which sounds ridiculous, to the center of the brain, to affect the amygdala, to affect uh, endorphin production. So when we looked at, when we brainstormed, what are all the things we can go after? Go after headache, uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, you know, you got set point doing implantable for inflammation and rheumatoid arthritis. You got microtransponder doing implantable for stroke or rehabilitation, which by the way, is my co-founder Naveed's postdoc work was microtransponders founding science. He translated that from animal to human for stroke recovery. Um, and so looking at all the opportunities, we saw the acupuncture, auricular acupuncture systems that were electrified uh, and they were putting them on people and actually just doing plain old uh, acupuncture, which is the same nerve bundles and networks for opioid withdrawal. And that became very quickly. And I saw a video um, of a girl who got the acupuncture system on and, and somebody going through opioid withdrawal looks like they're going through hell. The, you, the, the look on their face is just something that, you know, you can't talk to them, reason them. They, they are in an absolute miserable state. And I watched this video where over a 45, 60 minute period, this girl goes from snotting and crying, just aches and anxiety. And you can see the discomfort to a transformation at the end of the video where she is bright and, she, and just suddenly there's this beautiful girl here who looks positive and happy and, and calm. And I was like, that is profound. And I think we can reproduce what they're doing with needles, with hydrogels and non-invasive and, and, and actually improve upon it. And so that's what we did. And so we have an FDA cleared product called the Sparrow Therapy System, and it's approved to treat opioid withdrawal symptoms today. So we're on market with that. We've gone from complete inception to R&D, to, to verification, to clinical studies and FDA approval. We actually just finished our second gen product, uh, which is about to go to the FDA by Friday. Uh, so already have reinvented the product once, just improvements in cost of goods sold, usability, battery efficiency, uh, looks prettier. Uh, we, we have a little bit more money than the first one. So we are able to you know, upgrade it to more of a consumer electronics feel. Uh, and then where we're going with the company is we really have that vagal nerve 
and trigeminal nerve stimulation platform. And so we are branching the business out. We're going after neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. We've tested our first, done our first pilot study with babies born physically dependent on opioids, which is just a heart, heart-wrenching uh, condition to watch a newborn baby go through. They, they scream and cry this. It's just, it's not a normal cry. It's, it is unnatural and they shake and tremor. And so we had amazing results in our, and, and really that's also a whole story in of itself. Like as a little startup going after a newborn application is just should have been completely out of our reach. Uh, but we had the right partners, maybe luck to your earlier question, the right partners appeared at the right time. Uh, and our partner with uh, Bashar Badran and, and the Medical University of uh, South Carolina, MUSC has been an incredible partner uh, to move that along rapidly. Um, and so that's what we're doing uh, in a nutshell, tackling the addiction market. We have a long-term study started where we're going after relapse prevention. So opioid withdrawal and detox is about a five to seven day, really horrible process. But then, then you got to go start the healing and you got to stay off the, off the drugs. And so we have a relapse prevention study where we're using the product long-term to manage cravings and anxiety and triggers for relapse. So that's ongoing. Uh, and so really trying to think big, continue to move the science forward. Uh, being that two thirds of the partners have a PhD, clearly we're gonna put science first. Um, and so many companies don't do that. They don't continue to invest and march the science forward. But uh, we've, from our founding values, we said we would continue to give back to the scientific community. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. And, and also just a couple quick questions on that before we jump into the capital raising piece, but three and a half years since inception, second generation product completed, going to the FDA this week, like you mentioned, um, one first generation already commercialized. These are, I mean, you mentioned the FDA, these are regulated products and you were able to do two generations and commercialization on at least one gen in three and a half years. Yep. <laughs> yep. Wow. Okay. Lack of bureaucracy, uh, focus, you know, the right team. Um, I thought it was going to be a lot faster. I was completely wrong in all my, uh, all my timeline. So it costs twice as much and took twice as long, but that's because I was completely unreasonable in my first predictions. Uh, but yeah, uh, we've got a lot done. 15 million in non-dilutive funding to run clinical studies. Wow. on top of that. And, and two weeks ago, we got assigned a CPT code wow. uh, by CMS. Yeah, we've, we, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm very proud of this team. I'm proud of you for hearing the story after, after hearing the story. That's an amazing accomplishment. I, I, I see a lot of med tech startups in various capacities and various classes of, of medical device or even diagnostics and, and hearing that amount of achievement in three and a half years, especially starting a company is, is very impressive. So congratulations on that. And, and now I want to rip open the underbelly going back to the early part of this conversation, like you mentioned, right, you can have a great team, but you can't get people to get their feet on the ground every morning just for equity, there's got to be money, and you got to pay them. And in order to pay them, you got to have money and starting a three a company three and a half years ago, I'm assuming there's some sort of money story of how you were able to get money for Spark Biomedical in order to pay those people. So I want to rip open that story, which is the foundation and the, the railroad, if you will, of this podcast series, which is MedTech Money, where we demystify raising and investing 
money or capital in MedTech. Um, my first question, you know, we went through your background. You mentioned big box. You have started a gaming company before, but let's just, if we keep it MedTech focused, knowing your background, is this your first time raising capital for MedTech? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, if you can just give us a somewhat high level history of three and a half years ago when you started the company, you've never raised capital for MedTech before. What have you raised, whether it's in series of chunks or if it's all at once or just in three and a half years, tell us the high level money story. And then I'm just going to pick apart that so we can get into some of the mechanics behind it. What's the money story for the past three and a half years? Yeah. So we'll start with our first friends and family round, right? We were um, about three months in, had enough. Uh, we had built kind of a little prototype. You know, we were all working for free. Uh, we built a little prototype, uh, had enough proof and confidence that it was time to raise some money. So we thought we needed about 300000 And I, I just asked people I knew and everybody's like, well, you'll have a valuation maybe of two and a half to 3 million. Like the conceptually, that's right. That's what we see, maybe up to 5 million. So we made the pre-money. And valuation. you were asking like your aunts and uncles on this one or like just to be clear? No, like, I was asking like, like, yeah, I was asking, um, I had a, had a couple of my old colleagues go to incubators and, and were knowledgeable about startups to okay. some degree. My old CEO from Cyberonics, our, okay. our president, um, and a few others, um, and, and so we we just got a feel, and then kind of just made it up, and we we're we we're like, okay, we'll do a two million, uh, two two and a half or two and a quarter million pre money valuation. Started shopping it around. One of my first, one of our, our, our current VP of quality was like, I want to be the first investor, uh, so we. Uh, we, we started raising money that way. Um, you know, it was funny. My, I used my brother as a test subject. I'd go to him and he, he was like, I was like, I was, and it was, I was getting all kinds of crazy advice. Like, well, don't give them any voting rights. And then my brother was like, well, don't you want me voting for you? I'd be on your side. Cause you're eventually going to give those up and you're going to give them up to the wrong person. And I was like, mm, good point. You know, I found <laughs> every time I try to be tricky with the terms, and be selfish, I couldn't sell it. I couldn't look someone in the eyes. So it was like, just be trans. I, we just made it easy, you know, no special, there's no found special pool of founder shares. We're common, me and the other founders are common stockholders like everybody else, straightforward. Everybody gets voting rights. We just did straight up common stock that first round. I ended up oversubscribing the 300 to I think 462,000. So that was our common round. Um, so I'm finally going to give somebody ammunition to uh, populate Crunchbase because all this has been. So you're getting the scoop. I've never, I've never publicized any of this. Um, I love it. This is why the podcast exists. Keep on going. But you're pretty good to me. Yeah, I mean, you're very good to me. So, um, <laughs> so we we moved along, made progress, and and we did have a strategy. Well, for if I back up, I knew nothing of raising money. Um, uh, had got a good attorney. Luckily had one that's uh, a friend and uh, somebody I've known in my inner circles for a while who did contract this kind of stuff in oil and gas and had done it in healthcare. So I could trust him completely. I think that's really nice. My attorney was, you know, always making sure we're looked out for. And he's the corporate secretary now. Um, 
you know, it's funny because um, that first employee that wanted to write me a check, I, I called him up. I was like, hey, he wants to give me 25000 Can I just, do I just take it? And he's like, no, do not. Just, we need contracts. You need a subscription agreement. We need to create the stock. I was like, okay, <laughs> like, I had no idea. Like, don't. So the, my first advice is don't just take money from anybody. Have the legal stuff in place. Um, that, good advice. Very good advice. Not take any money from anybody until this is all done right. Um how long did it take you to close that first round, like that first oversubscribed round that you just mentioned? I mean, from the time that you started almost illegally taking money from your first employee to... <laughs> we not <laughs> um, I, th I think four or five months, but most okay. of it was pretty fast up front. I, and I remembered I got a couple $25,000 checks and then I got a $50,000 check. And I uh, that was amazing. That was... Whew. 50, someone just wrote a $50,000 check for this company. So I, so I'm going to take you through the emotional journey I had. Um, were you about to ask another question? Yeah, I, I was. I mean, like th these people, when you said four or five months and on this podcast, at least, whether it's seed rounds or venture rounds, I usually ask about the timing of such, right? I mean, I have heard <laughs> anomalies. We had a guy, an amazing executive on here, Todd Eusen, who's the CEO of Active Surgical. And he joined, and I, I, if I remember the, the timing correct, he, he was hired to raise a Series A. He joined in January, but really didn't start the raise until March. And he closed, Todd, forgive me if I'm getting the numbers wrong, it's like seven or 11 million by the end of June, like very quickly, like in three months. Um, that's a complete anomaly. I mean, typically, and very regularly, you hear six, nine, 12, and then I have a very good friend out of Germany who has an amazing story about how he was just about to close on his round. And then there was a guy, one of the investors on the Zoom call, you're looking at him on the Zoom call and a guy with a gun runs in and puts the gun to the head and it takes the guy down and the whole investment thing fell apart. Oh, and God. It ended up being policemen taking <laughs> taking down this guy because oh, he was involved in fraud or whatever. And then that ended up setting him back and he ended up having a round that took 18 months. So I've dealt oh. with like three in a very extreme, 18 in extreme. And I hear very regularly, six, nine, 12 to be able to properly prepare for a round. Um, so the reason why that's why I ask it. And who did you ask? How do you close it so quickly? I mean, did, did you have just a bunch of friends from Cyberonics and other places? Yeah, I mean, like, my, you know, when your old president who knew you when you were brand new to the company and still wet behind the ears, uh, puts money in your company, that's pretty humbling. Um, it was it was a mix. Um, some of my greatest recruiters were the salespeople who I knew that wanted to be part of it. They're salespeople and they're like, and they're war dialing their friends and they're like, you better get in on this, this guy, this is legit, I'm putting my money in. So I certainly, it was word of mouth very successfully. And then I would go through like a little dry spot and my, my, my pipeline would go dry and I'd start to lose hope. And then suddenly my pipeline would explode and I got nine people uh, interested. Uh, and that, that friends and family round was pretty, it's pretty easy, pretty exciting. It didn't take a ton. I mean, every round I've done, I've spent months and months testing the water ahead of time on what people think, the current investors, trying to get a feel, figuring the story out. Like, where are you since the last round? Why are you worth more? Why did your value go from two and a half million to nine million pre on our? So our next round was our seed round. And we set a 9 million pre Well, we had our first batch of clinical evidence, full working prototypes. We were in the clinical study. 
Um, and then we put um, a condition in that, that we wouldn't take the last million out of it till we submitted to the FDA till we finished. So there was a, a, a little bolus of money left set aside. So we raised three and a half million at a 9 million valuation. And this round was really interesting. So again, I didn't know. I, I went up. The best thing in the world was I just went on YouTube and watched videos on raising capital. What's what's a safe note? What's a convertible note? What are the terms of preferred stock? Because this was going to be a preferred round. What's drag along rights? What's rofers? What are all these things? So that I, I knew what variables I was dealing with. The common stock was easy. It's just common stock. It's, you know, <laughs> it's last in line and it just is what it is. Um, so before I derail you, and I, I don't want you to forget your thought, but what I do is I want to put the railroad track in there. So all the listeners in right now, at least know the direction that we're heading in. So real quickly, and then go right back to that. We talked about your first round, you're calling it a seed round, right? The very first one that we just talked about. We did the friends and family. I call friends it. And family. Okay. So in total, how many rounds, individual rounds have you done? What did, what did you name those rounds? What were the values that you raised in each of those rounds? And then what's the total amount of money that you've raised thus far? And then we can kind of reverse engineer it. Yeah, basically, we've done three rounds. We've done a friends and family round, a seed round. So the friends and family round around a two and a half million valuation, a, a seed round with a post money valuation after all was in 12 and a half million. And then we did a convertible note with a 50 million cap on it uh, most recently. And we're shopping a series A lead right now. Okay, so you're, you're currently raising your series A and you've raised three rounds, which you call the family and friends, a seed, and then a convertible note. Yep. Okay, um, so you were, and the amounts again, one more time. So how much was the, the family and friends round? 462. The seed round? Three and a half million. And then the convertible note? Seven and a half million. Okay, so that's really curious. So in total, something around 11 million, something like that, right? Yep. Okay. And my math probably, ought, I mean, there's, there's a couple of roundings in there, but yeah. Okay, <laughs> but that's curious. And I've, I've talked about this topic on the podcast numerous times about naming of rounds. Sometimes it's very classical. They're put in the box. It's a seed, it's a series A, it's a series B, it's a series C, and then it's an exit. Very rarely do they now follow that very classical path. So there's these different names in between, and sometimes they call them bridge rounds. Other times it's series A1, series A2, series C1, series C2, whatever it may be. Um, but you're calling around a convertible note. Is there a reason why you didn't name it something? Especially, at I didn't even like think to. Yeah, I didn't even think it needed a name. I just called it a convertible note. It was it was always meant to sort of bridge us to um, to the Series A. We didn't want to price the round because we were just coming on market and we did not want to be judged by multiples on revenue. I mean, it's just the beginning. Like there is not going to be any revenues for the next six to nine months. That is this is meaningful because we got to figure out the business model and and you know get some get some momentum, figure out our processes and customers. So we want to kick that valuation process down the road. Okay. So in terms of the style of investor that went into these three rounds, right? At 462, three and a half, seven and a half-ish, those numbers that you just mentioned. What style of investor? I mean, we talked about obviously angels from the family and friends. So friends, literally, and, and colleagues, yeah. et cetera. Are they all high net worth individuals? Are they angels? Are they angel groups? Are they family offices? 
Is there any venture capital in there thus far? Like what, what are the style? Yeah, we have no institutional money today, no venture, um, no private equity. We have a handful of angel investors, uh, the Aggie Angels uh, put, put a bid in us when we won the um, Texas A&M New Venture Competition. Um, and then a couple other individual angels and a couple groups out of that have individually continued to invest. Um, and then high net worth individuals uh, had a couple like syndicates of people who are investors and are really into this that are either doctors or in IT or in, they look for deals um, that have pulled it together. Uh, but I'll say, you know, the advantage is I don't have any VCs. So I don't have anybody with sharp elbows and I haven't, I don't have any terms that are meant to completely put me under the gun every day as a CEO. That's the upside. The bad side is I, I don't have any VCs. So I, for my A round, I'm flat footed shopping uh, the round. And that's where I'll be real honest today. Like, oh, we, we, I got caught off surprise. Like I had one way of raising money that was really successful and I've had to shift gears completely to go into the VC world. And um, they're very different animals. Uh, so we, we can kind of, I'll highlight that as we talk about it. So there's several points that I want to uh, rip apart right there. And I'm making notes while I ask you this next question. You earlier alluded to this $15 million in non-diluted funding to run clinical trials, right? So in total, you've raised this somewhat 11 million, like we just talked about in three different rounds but then you've also received non-dilutive funding. So in order to get three and a half years later with one generation commercialized, one second generation going to the FDA this week, I mean, there's been more money to get you that far in a regulated product than just 11 million, right? Uh, yeah, but most of the that 15 million is now, is taking us from here forward. Uh, we probably have only pulled down a million of that or 2 million because it's funding three different three different clinical studies, our big baby study, our, our long-term addiction study, and, a, and uh, what hasn't been announced yet is but a mechanism of action study. So that's still, we haven't done a press release on it. So most of that money has not been pulled down. That's taking us through the future. So okay. I'd say, I'd say the, I'd say the 11 million has taken us most of the way here. Very cool. Okay. So <clears throat> The major topic that we're going to rip open was the one that you were just going to jump into, which is really shifting those gears, um, which is between going angels, high net worth individuals, et cetera, like you mentioned, even the syndicates, and then shifting gears to raising capital from VCs. Two quick questions before we jump into that major topic, because I'm really interested in that one. Out of all the money from these high net worth individuals and syndicates, et cetera, you're from Dallas. Right now, you're based in Houston, Right. Um, so let's just call it Texas. Actually, the company's based in Dallas. I'm moving back there this summer. So yeah. <laughs> so. Mention to me. So, so let's call it Dallas. But for the most part, let's use Texas as a word. Your, yeah. your country, <laughs> your nation. Um, has all the money come locally? Is it, is it angels that have come from Texas? Or are you pulling money from, you know, doctor syndicates in Seattle and, you know, an angel and net worth individual in Buffalo, New York. I mean, how, how does that work? I don't know how you said Buffalo, New York, but I have a giant group out of Buffalo, New York, like a whole group of friends investing because one of uh, one of the sales guys that I know real well is from Buffalo and it's this whole crew. So I have 
have like the buffalony. Uh, so that's really funny. You, you pulled that out. That's um, really, that's say, hysterical that you actually said the really reason why I say that is because I'm, I'm from Buffalo, New York. And as I was going through my mind of random places to, you know, just call out to see if there was anything outside <laughs> of Texas, I was like, well, I love Seattle and I'm from Buffalo and <laughs> that's pretty funny. You got Buffalo money. Good for you. So I have a chunk out of Texas through networks of people who know um, art. So it's easier to explain. So our seed round, I was looking for a lead investor to set the terms and ended up uh, one of my old distributors that used to sell deep brain stimulation for me in Europe um, came to the table. He's very entrepreneurial. And he said, he said, Hey, what are you working? We're at, we're at Nans or something together. And he goes, what are you working on? And I was like, I told him, he's like, I might be interested in investing. I was like, cool you know how much and he said a couple hundred thousand and I remember how excited I got when I got 50,000 I was like oh my gosh somebody is interested in putting a couple of hundred thousand in so we all flew to Chicago uh, where he is from and um, met no they flew in from Chicago to us to Dallas and um, and we all met showed the business plan and he came back and he said I'm in for a million uh, so that anchored our seed round and uh, it was, un I mean, just unbelievable. And what's hilarious is he accidentally transferred euros versus dollars. So he transferred 1.136 million. I know this number very well. And his wife called me up and she goes, just put it all in Spark. He's just going to buy a car with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I mean, so they're, they're like family, right? I mean, they, they want us to succeed. They care about us personally. Been, you know, they're fantastic to have on the board, somebody like that. So, I mean, I'll put that as luck too. Um, yeah. The first time suddenly a million dollars goes in the bank, you're just like, I, I can't believe this is happening. This is amazing. By the so, way, just to clarify, you mentioned Chicago, but I heard the Europe thing earlier. Was he physically based over in Europe? I mean, I know, I know that he goes back, he goes back and forth. Okay. Okay. So yeah. there's a split thing, but so I, I just have to stop because I'm sure that there's entrepreneurs, earlier stage entrepreneurs salivating because we've covered angel and family and friends, early stage rounds. We've heard inception entrepreneurial stories before. Yours is getting really, really unique for me right now. And I'm, I just, I can't, <laughs> I can't wrap my head around it based on some of the other categorical stories that I've heard before. Um, you know, typically speak, and you're breaking a lot of barriers right now because I've heard seed rounds, family and friend rounds, they're very regional. I mean, typically speaking, if someone's based in the Bay Area and they're going to go, you know, raise their family and friend rounds or their seed round, you ask where the money comes from. And typically speaking, it's within driving distance from their house with, within an hour or maybe an hour and a half because you're in the Bay. Um, or, or, you know, if you're in Maryland, the same thing. It's, it's, it's this early stage money typically seems very regional. You have this nationwide seemingly nationwide investment pool. Obviously there's some stuff in, in Dallas. Pockets, but think, so when I started the game stores, I didn't know anything about anybody. I, you know, I've consulted for a handful of years. I didn't have a network. Now I have almost 20 years in neurostimulation and, and what is, what is really, I mean, I'm calling on these relationships. So that, that is why, you know, I was, I was a global product manager. So I have these relationships. I think that's what's changed it. So it changed me saying, I never want to be an entrepreneur again. But when I got the bug, I was like, you know, I've actually learned something over the last 20 years. Like I've, you know, in fairness, I've been through an FDA warning letter. I've been through corporate integrity agreements with the OIG. 
uh, I've, I've seen products launched. I've seen them inception. I've seen recalls. So my perspective was totally different on this company. And I will say, you know, I'm not, I'm not 23, just out of college with a good idea in the Bay area. I'm, you know, calling on those networks. Uh, and you know, like, I remember when we had problems with this distributor and I took care of him and I made sure he had product and I flew over there. And uh, I would say some of the me just really taking care of the field back in my St. Jude days, you know, which I never planned on, had any intention really paid off because they were like, no, you, you were the good guy who, because distributors get treated like crap in medical device they, they they push inventory to you they'll cut you off they'll you know you're you're second class citizen but i always treated them you know they were just as important as anybody else so i think that came around to benefit me with some the way some of this has worked so um, i i started the podcast with saying that there's no such thing as a silver bullet or specific formula or magic on how to raise or invest capital but the one thing I wanted to pull off of that, and you alluded to it right now, is your, your network, you know, 20 years in the industry, et cetera, um, and you're calling on them now. And, and on the podcast, we have covered numerous times the skill set that's very necessary to be a successful entrepreneur, which is wanting to network, the ability to network, to build a network, to manage yeah. a network. Yes. Um, so while it's not necessarily the silver bullet to getting money in your bank, there's a lot of extra work that has to go involved in that. but at least having a network is a silver bullet for being an entrepreneur. You need a network. Absolutely. 100%, 100%. I mean, cause I, I would walk around the house and I would just war dial my contact list to, to ask people questions, to get ideas, to move this forward. And, you know, like my CFO, I was literally, I used to literally do this in the early days. I would just scroll through my phone, looking at all my contacts, looking for one to call to be, and I'm very extroverted, clearly, and just looking for one to call for the next uh, like inspiration. And uh, Carl Pollock came across and he was over in Silmar with the cardiac side of the house. And when, when the divisions merged with St. Jude and he was always good to us and he was business savvy. And I called him up and we caught up for a minute and I went, you want to be my CFO? And he was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, this is wearable stuff. So load of crap. <laughs> like I said, so, you know, three and a half years later, he's my CFO. Uh, so <laughs> I love that. You know, it was, yeah. Yeah. It's the network. You, you gotta, you gotta get out there and then keep getting out there and learning. And, and, you know, I, I go to the neurotech reports events. I go to the LSI events where, you know, we've seen each other and, and, you know, just try to, there are stuff you need to be at because magic happens at it and that you'll, you'll expand your network. Couldn't agree more. The other, the other magic though, and I recognize this as special is look, I'm not, I'm not raising money to build the next generation catheter. I'm not raising money to build another neuromodulation system for pain. Everyone in this country is one or two um, uh, contacts away from being affected by the opioid epidemic. And, you know, you, you can just watch the death count if, if, if it's actually getting publicized, which it isn't. But I have a lot of people invested because they're like, I've seen this. I've seen this in my family or I've, I've, my friend's son overdosed. I'm in and they're convicted and they're in. And then we're company saving babies. And so, you know, I, 
absolutely sincerely and positive that that motivates me every day. But my last slide on the deck was a baby <laughs> with her earpiece on, you know, it's like, do you want to be part of the company saving babies? So I, you know, I've told my partners, this will only happen once. If we go start another neuromodulation or med tech company, it won't go like this because we are tackling a, a very personal problem uh, that is wrecking this country. Uh, and, and everybody knows it and everybody sees it. Um, you see the homelessness going out of control in all of our downtown areas and it's, it's mental health and drugs. Uh, and the drugs are, are mostly uh, opioids. So I, I think it's been easy to have, people like to invest in mission-driven uh, opportunities. And so that's helped us. I, I think that's helped it a ton, made this a lot easier. So I was gonna use great technology, but mission-driven opportunities or mission-driven technologies like you just talked about, that's the <laughs> second bullet, second silver bullet for having a, a great successful med tech startup, right? I mean, first, yes, as an entrepreneur, have the network. Um, but like you said, and also we've heard other entrepreneurs talk about it. I mean, it can't be just another iteration or another me to typically speaking to get a great amount of money or a lot of fat. I'm sure there's money out there for it, but you know, you got to be moving the needle. You got to have something with purpose and mission-driven technologies or mission-driven opportunity, like you mentioned, and what the problem is that you're trying to solve and going after is huge, which obviously... I call it sexy tech. That's that's my word, though. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, I wanted to go one last smaller question before we go into the bigger topic of difference between the angels and the VCs, and then we'll close off. Um, your third round, you call it a convertible note because you didn't want to call it any, or you didn't think about calling it anything or you didn't need to. All the previous rounds, did you ever do a price round up until then, or has everything been a safe or a convertible note or... What no, were the, they were, the first two rounds were priced. Okay. So your first yeah. round was even priced. The first round was priced uh, with the two million, two and a half, two and a quarter million pre-money. The, the seed round was a nine million pre-money priced. And the convertible note was our first foray into a non-priced round. So where did you even get the idea, especially in the third one, not even the first, let alone second, but the third one to do a non-price round? I mean, was that a YouTube video or like how, by then you didn't even need convertible notes? How did that come about? We just, we had just got FDA approval and our revenue. So we were moving from the, you have this problem where you, as an entrepreneur and a business, you have all the potential in the world before you're on market and then your value crashes once you're on market, because you got to realize the revenue. So when you're all shiny, waving your hands saying, you know, there's 11 and a half million patients we're going to reach and everything, your value goes up. And there's um, a book called the J curve, which talks about you actually draw before you go up in value, you're going to drop in value because you got to go through this lull of figuring out everything broken, trying to sell this. I guarantee sales will not be anything what you think they are. Um, R&D, clinicals, and regulatory are so easy. <laughs> They're just formulaic. You know, things can go wrong. The clinical can fail. But the nuance of selling and commercializing marketing and sales and sales force structure and pricing and going after reimbursement, once you move into that, then you're being judged on multiples on revenue and multiples on revenue of $7,000. is not exciting. <laughs> you know, it's like we sold $7,000. I mean, we were pretty excited about it. It was, we have one salesperson. Um, 
So we wanted to forego the price round so that we could have more winning events on our side, like getting the grants, like getting a CPT code, uh, you know, like um, getting some big customers to endorse us or a national contract. So it was it was strategic for sure that we just because they would have priced us, you know, probably 18 million or something or 20 million. We think the company's worth a lot more than that. So you call it strategic. I, I call that genius. I thought that's a very smart move and, and a good business model. So I learned something just now. I hope everyone else. It was Carl's idea. So I give it to CFO. <laughs> He's the one who explained this to me. So. Thank you, Carl. That, that was a genius move. And, and I think you guys are doing an awesome job. And thank you for teaching us this. So um, I want to sign off with this question because I think that this is like the, the limelight bigger bullet that I think was cool that I wanted everyone to hear and learn, which is your current experience now. You alluded to it earlier about having to shift gears. We've learned about the three rounds that you've raised thus far, how you've raised them, the silver bullet of the network, the purpose behind why a convertible note, that's awesome. Now all of a sudden you're raising a series A and it's going and you're going after the venture world. Um, Sharp, sharp elbows, but also value add beyond that, like you were mentioning, right? Here's the punchline question that I want to fill up the rest of our time together is, what is the difference between someone who's raising from high net worth individuals or family investors or, or just, we'll call it super friends, if you will, um, on these angel and seed rounds, and then you switch to VCs, like you mentioned, switching these gears. As an entrepreneur, what does it look and feel like in terms of difference between raising from two of these groups? Yeah, it goes from very forgiving to very unforgiving. Um, I And, you know, I suffered probably from a little bit of hubris, but, you know, a lot of people are like, Dan, you're amazing at raising money. Like I bring it in like nobody's business. And so like I, I closed 19 deal, I, I closed 19 pitches in a row during the convertible note. I was feeling pretty good about myself. And those were coming in between twenty-five to four hundred thousand uh, dollars. It was, it, it was a good run. My dopamine centers were happy <laughs> daily. You know, I was just like the reward centers. Woo! Um, VCs, no matter how good you are, it's going to be no, nineteen no's to to one. Uh, let's move to due diligence. And if you make one wrong step in due diligence, but no, it's a no. Start the game over. Um, you know, and it is very formulaic. Um, you need a process, you need to work the process. And by that, I mean, you, you, you gotta, and I think it's a little unfair. They expect me to be an expert at the VC process, um, which, um, you know, it's, it's frustrating because, and I say this, I'm right in the middle of it. I've retooled. So we started raising, got no traction, had to back up, figure out what was wrong, um, raised a little bit more money in the convertible note so that I, that's the other thing. You got to be healthy on cash. You raise with VCs, you start to run out of cash. They will bleed you out and then take your company for a low valuation. So I, I feel, remember I said, I have no special stock. I have no founder shares. I have just common stock. I get paid last. Uh, makes me look after all of my initial friends and family investors and all the investors come first. So I got to do what's best for them in this next raise from a valuation increase. Also not put somebody who's going to get the lion's share at the end, get the lion's share after they've already put in 11 million 
compared to this. So I got to be in a strong negotiating position. So the, my number one goals is competition and options amongst this and time to work the process. Um, and it's slow. And then I have World War III and mass inflation coming about right now, which is just like really. So if I'd done this. Oh, don't forget the stock market crashing too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, if I'd done this right a year ago, I think this would have been a breeze. If I'd, if I'd been more knowledgeable and had my process in place this time last year, poof, this would have been just, I think I would have crushed it. But then I, I back up and I say at the same time, we didn't have the sales model down. We were, we were just, you know, where my company is now compared to a year ago is vastly in a healthier, better position because we've really figured out our go-to-market model and several other key things and reimbursement codes and grants. Um, so I guess hindsight's 2020, right? I am here now. Uh, so that was really a learning curve, humbling. I'm kind of glad it happened. Like I said, I was raising money so easily. It was kind of good to get my teeth kicked in and then be like, oh, oh no, like I, I got I to gotta really hustle here. Uh, and it is a hustle. So, and then finding the right VCs, what, what I'm, there are though the right matches. I would believe that's the other one. So we have a couple who, like I got on with a VC the other day and they said, who are you? What gets you up in the morning? what's your vision for your company to take care of its people? And I was like, Oh, we're friends. This, this is who I want to talk to. Like you're asking me the questions I want to answer up front and then we'll get to the business model. Um, but a lot of them, you know, they're cutthroat. They're there to turn a 20 X profit uh, out of one out of 10 of their deals or whatever it is, you know? Uh, and in, in terms of the, um, the mechanics. So you mentioned earlier on, they're expecting you to know the VC process or you alluded to this quote unquote VC process. What is a VC process? I mean, even if it changes, but just what do you mean by that? Is it just whack stamp something or? So start early, start seeding their relationship and get on the radar, kind of prep them for what's coming. Um, then you get the, the time to really pitch consistent follow-up and especially if you move into term sheets and whatever you need to be on that on a regular basis showing you're engaged you're not just waiting around um the uh, due diligence itself you need to be prepared you need to know the documents you need to know everything they're going to want you better have your business model where you can deep dive like we're implementing telehealth right now and somebody asked me what's your cost of acquisition per per patient. And I, we hadn't calculated that yet. And so that I almost killed, I mean, that kind of killed the conversation. It's like, let me go do some homework. Um, Cause we, you know, we're building we're in the middle of building it out. Um, so you really got to be buttoned up on that, buttoned up on your patents, buttoned up on your technology, your clinical studies. Um, and, and then I would say, you know, there's so many variables in the business plan itself. I think that's where you, I think I've just found the most critical is they're, they're questioning everything about the business plan. I run into a problem, you know, if it's a software as a service, if you were traditional med tech in a, in a circles like uh, neuro or, or pain or something, they know the models. I think something extra challenging is people don't know addiction. Um, it's, it's got stigmas, they ignore it, they know it's a problem, they might have personal judgments against it and biases. Uh, so I spend a lot of time trying to educate 
and simplify the education around the business model. That's the other thing is um, they ask complex questions, but you got to be able to boil down the answers to be low cost of goods, high sales price, you know, stuff like that. Big industry savings. So like you got to, you got to hit the points. Last question, more mechanical than anything. The story that you brought to the investors, especially the ones that you closed 19 in a row, and even historically the ones prior to that, was there a change in story? Were there, was there a change in length or aesthetics or orientation or formatting on the pitch deck that you used for your previous investors um, on the angel and high net worth individual rounds versus VCs? What does that difference look like? And then basically, if you could get onto a loudspeaker um, and talk to a bunch of entrepreneurs who are either currently raising capital or about to raise capital in that high net worth individual space who are in the future approaching VCs, if you could tell them, hey, guys, this is what you should be prepared for in terms of making that shift. What is that shift in story and what's needed? I think I'm shifting the story based on company life cycle, not based on audience. Um, I, in the early days, I spent a lot of time saying, look, you, trust me. We understand this clinically. Trust me. We understand the mechanism. Trust me. We understand the engineering and the regulatory pathway, and we have the team, and we can do this. And we kind of got in the middle, and it was like, look, we have early results. They're great. Uh, you know, these various things. And I spent too much time still saying, trust me, we understand the mechanism of action. And it's like, they don't care. You're on market. You got FDA approval. It's like, look, it works. It, it reduces withdrawal by 53% in 60 minutes. And they go, okay. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's, a, and it's a, an appendix deck. So I don't know if I adjusted because there were VCs. Um, most of the deck. There's probably a few slides in there that have added where I really just try to nail the business model, low cost of good sales, high pro high price, total addressable market. I don't think anybody care, cared about the total addressable market. It was like, yeah, there's an opioid epidemic. So I, I spent little time on the business and more on science, engineering, capability, regulatory pathway, um, babies, you know, what we're going to do. So now it's really, you know, I have people going, can you really generate that much, you know, on a $3,000 ASP? Can you really hit those revenue numbers? We're moving more critical on, on the business model on um, some of those aspects. And then lastly, the Series A, what are you looking to raise in terms of number? We know the numbers of your previous three rounds, but how much are you looking to raise? And do you care where the money comes from and all that stuff about your current raise? Yeah, we're, we're going to raise 10 million. We estimate that gets us real darn close, if not to cash flow positive even, which is exciting, which you see what some of these companies are raising in the wearable space. They're in the hundreds of millions. And I think if, if we can get to cash flow positive on 21 million, that's that's the story people need to see is you don't need 170 million to do that. The investors will never get their money out. Sorry, that's my soapbox. I'll put it up. Um, I mean, there might be a little jealousy if somebody wants to write me a $77 million check like certain other wearables just got, boy, that would make my life easier. Um, but we, um, yeah, I, I would love a mission-driven investor that, you know, is not um, super, you know, kind of lets us get this where it needs to be for society. The money will come. 
um, you know, we have we have a product in a hard high need, and we just need to work the process. But I recognize, you know, v, the VC money opens other doors. So, you know, I'm shopping all of it, and we'll see we'll see where it lands. We're kind of in that point where the first four or five are having that I'm making it to the second and third meetings are coming, and still meetings every week. So it's 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 gaining a lot of momentum, and it is interesting. It gains momentum as you go, and then suddenly they start calling each other and. And saying, hey, you ought to take a look at this too. So I'm and I was gonna let you off one last one, and, and it's just the um oh God, of course I'm gonna forget the author's name right now. It's gonna come to me in a second, but why? Um I'm Simon Sinek. Thank you. Thank you so much. He's branded himself with why. So anyway, Simon Sinek, the, the, the famous why. So you had three rounds done, high net worth individuals, angels, like we talked about, um, no pun intended or, or tongue in cheek rather um, about the sharp elbows piece, but now you're going to, to, to VCs. Why now? Like, what do you need a VC for? I, they write the bigger checks. I can't, I can't raise another 10 million on a hundred thousand dollar checks. It just, I need to run the company. And this is, you know, that's the other thing is fundraising takes you away from running your company and is a full-time job. And in every extra month I'm doing this, I'm not helping all my people succeed. I'm not there for them. Uh, I'm not overseeing, you know, and, and things go wrong that I could have, things adrift, set adrift that I could have prevented. Um, and I'm tired of raising money. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long time. <laughs> so one big check, um, one big check so I can just not worry about what's in the bank and so that I can just really run, you know, the CEO's job is to set a vision, onboard the talent to execute the vision and make sure there's money in the bank. And I would like to knock one of those off where I don't have to worry about it for a year versus worrying about it every other month. Daniel Powell, co-founder, CEO, of Spark Biomedical. I want to say thank you so much for your time. I've I've personally learned a lot. I, we've known each other for years. We ran into each other at conferences, at NANS, et cetera. Um, it's so cool to learn this much more about you. Uh, thank you for telling us on the MedTech Money podcast what you haven't already told Crunchbase or other places. So I really appreciate you opening up. <laughs> um, this has been an absolutely fascinating uh, conversation, at least for me. And, and I hope the listeners have learned a lot. I, I personally learned a lot. And I love this idea of shifting from angels, basically, to VCs in that transition and, and obviously entrepreneurship. Um, so I wanted to say, Daniel Powell, thank you again for being here on the MedTech Money Podcast series, where we demystify raising and investing capital in MedTech. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.